Paved with gold Lifted some stones Saw the skin and bones Of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house Where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm surrounded by beauty here, I tell you. They do nothing but make me look horrible, large, and ugly. But here they are, youth. We have Brianne, seven years old, and we have Ashley, 17 years old, a decade between them. Great kids. I was able to talk to both of them. Ashley's from West Jordan, 12th grade. She says her uh, ambitions are going to college, right? Excellent. And then Brianne's seven years old from Riverton. She's in second grade and she enjoys computers. And in our conversation before we started the show, uh, Brianne said she was very proud that Ashley has decided to go to college. So they're giving each other good advice. And, and, and uh, Ashley told Brianne, if you have a stranger talk to you, run the other direction. So we're having all kinds of good stuff shared. Is there anything you want to say to the studio audience before you go off? Safety is number one. But our show is so multidimensional. And Brianne, anything you would like to say? Good luck. Good luck, she says. Good luck. Thanks, you guys, for being on. Okay? You just head off that way. Heart of the Matter can be watched from anywhere in the world through streaming video. Just go to www.hotm.tv and you can watch it right there. Affordable Automotive is an excellent place to take your car. They're fair, they're honest, and they are devout Christians. Uh, Affordable Automotive right there on 9th East in Salt Lake City. If you have uh, car trouble and you want someone to shoot with you, deal with you honestly, check them out. Would you like to meet or be an Aletheia representative? We have over 100 people throughout the nation, even world, but primarily the nation, who would love to meet with you if you are searching for truth, if you're coming out of Mormonism or you're just wondering about Jesus, if you're looking for someone who lives in your vicinity, you can email us and we'll put you in contact with whoever we have in that area. And of course, if you would like to be an Aletheia uh, ambassador, excuse me, uh, email us at the same place, say, hey, look, I live in this place. I'd like to uh, be available to people who are searching and we'll put you in there. Have you checked out our website, um, our, our ministry's websites lately? First, try www.bornagainmormon.com. This is the site that kind of started it all. It was around well before the show itself, and we'll answer a lot of questions about our approach to ministry to the LDS. Then there is www.hotm.tv. That's for this program, and that's a site that you can not only watch Heart of the Matter through streaming, like I said, Right now, in fact, you can do it. 
you can also go to our archives and watch literally hundreds of hours, almost 300 hours of uh, information just waiting for you to, to absorb up and it's all free so you can go check that out. Uh, we have other sites too but they're all being redone, updated and altered. Why? Hmm. Because on Sunday, October 2nd, we are launching a church. Uh, let me talk about this just for a minute. I grew up cutting my teeth, unfortunately, on punk music. And when my brain cells begin to matriculate, I invested heavily in studying uh, existentialist thought, all the while being LDS. And then I came to uh, Ayn Rand's objectivism and studied that. And, went through the dregs of communism and finally to nihilism, all that before the light of the Lord took hold of me in 1997. Nevertheless, kind of like maybe an artist who becomes a Christian or an electrical engineer who becomes a Christian, my exposure to these things were carried into my Christian walk. Yes, all things became new, but I come to my Christian walk analyzing culture, people, and societal norms in a very unique way. Admittedly, this is tough for some people to like. I've never, I've never gone to a Christian church. I mean, when I was in school of ministry, I attended a Christian church. Uh, I was mandated to do that, but I ran the front office for that, and I wasn't involved in all the uh, uh, sacerdotal duties or any of the rites or rituals or any of the worship or any of the stuff with it. So I really don't know what Christian church is supposed to be other than what I read in the book of Acts. I've, of course, visited churches and seen many things. Uh, so we have come to believe and think we can prove it biblically that many uh, modern church uh, applications are lacking, failing, futile, even scary. Now that is not to say all. There are so many very good Bible teaching churches out there. So don't think I'm saying we are it, you know. But our approach is going to be a little bit different. So it seems to us kind of that the body of Christ started off in Acts chapter 2 very lean and fit. And today it kind of looks like me. It's put on a lot of pounds. It's got a lot carrying around a lot of weight that is just not part of what the Bible teaches us. So we've prepared something for you to give you an example. Take a look. We're just preaching the Bible. God has given us the gift of repentance. Here's two thousand and fifty dollars. It will be different. Uh, campus stands for Christian anarchists meeting to prayerfully understand scripture. 
Let me uh, talk about that because people are naturally wondering, of course, what the heck does that mean? Let me break it down. First, you'll notice that the first word in that title is um, Christian. And uh, it prefaces everything that we believe our love for Christ and Christianity is as it's found in the hearts of believers uh, around the world, as it's written in the words of the Bible. We proudly lock arm with arms with all Christians everywhere, even if we think they're errant in their application of it. We consider anybody who trusts Jesus as the sole source of salvation and faith in Him as our uh, spiritual siblings, and we support their every attempt to uh, try to seek and find and worship God. But then we come to the second word in the title, anarchists. And all alone, this is a frightening term. But we preface it by Christian so that it will take on a whole new meaning. We're Christian anarchists. This means we are not a, a, about chaos. We're not about fighting the government. We're not about uh, uh, anarchistic activities out in the secular world. Christianarchy is uh, nothing new. Um, its, its author is this guy named Jesus. And uh, in essence, he too was incensed at the religious practices of his day, many of them, and of the things of the world, which he stood readily against, and with the human focus on the self, self, self. Uh, our king spoke and he taught the word, he is the word, and he too, he avoided all things political, all things. So there it is. Now, if you're interested in exploring a relationship with Jesus, in a totally deconstructed manner, that's how we're going to uh, kind of address that, join us for this uh, gathering, this first gathering of its kind, uh, at the U of U, October 2nd. Uh, go to campus, that's with hyphens between, campus.com, uh, hyphens between each letter, or email us, uh, you can get directions, things like that. Uh, that being said, let me uh, tell you this. Uh, as that graphic's up there. We're not here to take you from your church in, here in Utah. If you go to a good Bible teaching church, stay there and continue to worship with the church you're in. This is for people who say, you know, I want to deconstruct in how I've been doing things. I want to just get down to biblical basics and leave church as something that uh, serves me rather than I constantly serve it. Uh, we want you to be serving your neighbor, uh, not the church. So not, it's probably going to be a boutique uh, a church, meaning small, and uh, that, that'll be a good thing. And so if you're in that area and you're considering that and you're interested in that, if you've had a falling out with your pastor, go talk to your pastor. Don't come because you're bitter over something like that, but just if it, if it works right with you and the Holy Spirit tells you, then you're always welcome to join us October 2nd as we launch the church. Okay, how about a moment from the Word? Tonight we're going to read from the Word, and I'm not going to really add any of my words alone. However, a couple pictures might pop up just to give you an illustration of what we're talking about. Not yet, picture person. <laughs> They're going to pop up as we read from the words of Christ. Now this is what Jesus says in Matthew 23 as we go through the book of Matthew. Then Jesus spake to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works. For they say, but they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born, and lay them on men's shoulders, 
but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, and all their works they do for to be seen of men. And they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. By the way, everybody there is asking for either a beer or a Diet Coke. Um, and, uh, and the greetings in the markets, Jesus says, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But, Jesus says, be not ye called Rabbi. For one is your master, even Christ. And you are all brethren, he says. And call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters. For one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. We are slaves to Christ. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased exalting himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So enough said with that. I hope the pictures helped you see kind of what Jesus might have been alluding to, possibly. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord help us. Help me as we do the show. Help all of our volunteers, the people running all the technical stuff, and uh, bless them and help our audience, whether they're here, out there in the world, searching for truth. Lord, we want to be better Christians. So help us to be better Christians. That means we are people of faith, Lord, and we are people who love. So let us be people of revolutionary faith and revolutionary love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, we've been trying to get through our exhaustive analysis of the Book of Mormon, where it came from, how it came to be, who brought it forth, what makes it up. We started way back looking, among other things, at the early American setting that existed before Joseph Smith was even born. We called these shows or programs The Ground, if you remember. And then we discussed Joseph Smith's paternal influence and maternal influence on his life. And we called that the seed, okay? The, the shows that reflected that were called seed. And then we discussed the magic practices Joseph Smith's own father exposed his son to. And we called these programs fertilizer. So we have ground, we have the seed, we have fertilizer. And then seven programs ago, we began to touch on how the book itself came forward or, and, uh, or came out. And we are calling those programs planting, all right? Now, it might appear that we veered slightly off course in speaking about the first vision for the past seven weeks, but we had to do it. You see, Joseph Smith, after years of telling people that an angel came to him when he was 17 years old and told him about golden plates, he started to rethink his beginnings and he thought it was necessary to make up an additional tale. One the LDS now today call the first vision. In this myth, Joseph said that when he was only 14 years old, either the Lord or an angel of the Lord or angels or God the Father in a body of flesh and bone, depending on which version you read, uh, came to him and made a visit. We have been able to prove the first vision, a myth, over the last seven weeks by exploring these four areas. The context of the first vision, the canonicity of the first vision, the consistency of the first vision, and the chronology of the first vision. In each area, the first vision fails uh, the simple tests for authenticity, all right? So we want to try and leave the first vision mess behind now and start looking at 
uh, tonight at what the second vision consists of, which was when an angel named Moroni supposedly made a visit to Joseph Smith in 1823 and told him about Barry Golden Plates. For clarity's sake, we will refer to the first vision as the one the LDS say, God visited Joseph Smith, and we'll refer to the Moroni visit of the angel Moroni as the second vision. That will be the consistent pattern so that we can uh, keep things uh, understandable. But it's going to take one more week for this mess of the first vision to completely disappear before we can fully in, uh, integrate the discussion about Moroni and the second vision. You'll understand why in a minute. Okay. Joseph told a number of people about this second vision of an angel coming to him shortly after it supposedly occurred. But it wasn't until 1842 that Joseph Smith himself published an official version of this account. Now remember, this is 20 years later, and Joseph Smith provides the world with an official version of how this angel came to him and told him about golden plates, etc. So he had plenty of time to get his story straight. Well, let's read what the Joseph Smith account says. Now, I didn't make this up. It was written by Joseph in 1842 and was published in the Mormon periodical Times and Seasons, Volume 3, Number 12, on April 15, 1842, page 753. There is where it comes from. You ready? This is what Joseph said 20 years later about his vision with the angel. I discovered a light appearing in the room which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday. When immediately a personage appeared at my bedside standing in the air, he called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me and that his name was Nephi. That God had a work for me to do. He said there was a book deposited and he goes on to tell the story of what Nephi told him about these buried golden plates. We all know that the story the missionaries tell today, the angel that's atop all the LDS temples is the angel Moroni. And that it was Moroni in all the library pictures the LDS show their little children is standing there above Joseph in his bedroom telling him about golden plates. But here in Joseph Smith's account, he says his name was Nephi, another Book of Mormon character. This would be like Mark Twain uh, calling Huckleberry Finn Huckleberry Jones. Or Moses writing that in, the, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, Paul. Uh, you, you just don't make these kinds of mistakes. Now, the LDS apologists who defend this account that Joseph Smith provided and put in the Times and Seasons, the LDS defenders say, this is a typo. That it's a typo that Nephi was put there in the account. The account was written by Joseph Smith and published in an LDS magazine, and they try to explain away this by saying it was a typographical error. This might hold water if the mistake was like, and his, and his name, he said, was Noroni, or uh, Morona, or uh, something similar to the name Moroni. But anyone who's ever written anything knows that main characters, uh, typos, don't change identities completely. Yet the LDS expect people to take historical stuff like this, for which there is just a truckload, and explain it away, explain it away, explain it away, oogie, 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 explain it away, explain it away, give answers for it, and everyone keeps buying the truckload of explanations as to possibly why this could have happened. To add fuel to the con, for many years after Joseph's death, there was confusion among the Mormons as to really who appeared in his bedroom. 
Was it Nephi or was it Moroni? I'm not sure Joseph Smith himself could remember. It took years of scurrying documents away before the brethren of the LDS Church could finally produce a solid story that everyone could repeat and there bear solemn testimony to, I know, oogly, 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 that Joseph Smith saw the angel Moroni. I know it was the angel Moroni. When, I mean, their official account, and for years in the early church, they thought it was Nephi, you know? They, they didn't know, wasn't really sure who it was. And in the first vision, supposedly, uh, it was an angel telling Joseph about the plates and that none of the churches were true. The early church was full of misconstrued ideas and contradictions, and it's taken conspiring men to say, we want to systematize this faith so that we can get people into a lockstep process of belief so that like Amway, they can get up and they can say, I know this product saved me from testicular cancer. And if you buy it now, you will too be saved from testicular cancer. And it works on ovaries too, ladies. I mean, that's how it works in this gig. It's multi-level marketed, systematized doctrines, cleaned up, scurried away, hidden in church archives, and you get this, this clean thing about what it really is. Unfortunately, they couldn't scurry away one of the accounts from one of the most reliable witnesses to Joseph's statements, his own mother. It seems that she, in her first edition of her history, wrote this about what Joseph saw. Ready? In the spring after we moved onto the farm, we were all sitting till quite late, conversing upon the subject of the diversity of churches that had risen up in the world and the many thousand opinions in existence as to the truths contained in Scripture. After he ceased conversation, meaning Joseph Smith, Joseph went to bed and was pondering in his mind which of the churches were the true one when he had not laid there long until he saw a bright light enter the room where he lay. He looked up and saw an angel of the Lord standing by him. The angel spoke, I perceive that you are inquiring in your mind which is the true church. There is not a true church on earth, no, not one and has not been since Peter took the keys of the Melchizedek priesthood after the order of God into the kingdom of heaven. And the churches that are now upon the earth are all man-made churches. There is a record for you. But if you cannot get it, but you cannot get it until you learn to keep the commandments of God. The record is on the hill of Cumorah, three miles from this place. So Joseph's mother, who was there for all the things, other believers down the line, including me, including you, we weren't there, but his own mother was there, and she said it all began after they were sitting around the house one night talking about why there's so many churches. He goes in, an angel of the Lord pops out, says all the churches are not true. We don't see this in the accounts now. And bottom line, there's a hill three miles away from here called Cumorah, and in it's buried some gold. And Joseph, of course, had been out searching for gold with the hat and the stone. And this all ties into his thinking and thoughts. Go to that hill, Joseph. You'll find this record. So instead of the father and son telling Joseph there is no true church, it was an angel. His mother also concluded in this account that the angel said, uh, uh, told him about the record. Joseph's brother, uh, William, also in his accounts later on, two different ones said the same thing his mother said of how this all got started. So... What happened here? 
What, what do you think happened? I'm going to make conjecture based on the stuff I read and study. May be true, may not, but here's my conjecture. Why didn't Joseph Smith just build off the story he originally presented that in the year of 1823, an angel appeared to him in his bedroom, told him none of the churches were true, and there was a book written on gold plates hidden in a hill not far from there. Why tease that story apart and take sections of it and then concoct a brand new myth, predate it three years earlier to when he was only 14, call it a first vision that said God the Father in a body of flesh and bones and Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him none of the churches were true and, and, and go on and on like this. Right or wrong, I would suggest a couple reasons. First, as his church and movement grew, Joseph needed more to stand on as its trusted mouthpiece from God. The story that, quote, an angel appeared to him and told him about some buried uh, gold plates on a hill was not enough oomph for Joseph to convince the people around him and who followed him that he was the chosen one to restore the true church back to the earth. See, the Book of Mormon did not start off as a religious book. Many first-hand witnesses state that the golden plates, when first announced, had no connection to religion at all. It merely had connection to history, a history of the Indians, how they got here. That was the initial construct of the early discussions of the Book of Mormon. In fact, Joseph Smith himself first used a non-religious explanation of how he came upon the plates in the earliest tales. We're going to cover that in the weeks to come. It was only later that the Book of Mormon itself became a religious volume. And that was after the lost 116 pages. Okay, So Joseph needed more of a heavenly affirmation to get people to truly lock on to his being divinely appointed uh, then and even today. Once he got himself and those who followed him away from his old magic peep stone stomping grounds of his youth and out away, moving away, it seems he felt safe enough producing a new early history that wouldn't be challenged by those who could and would have called him on it. Had he stayed in the stomping ground area and tried to develop his church, the people there would have said, what are you talking about, First Vision? What are you talking about? You, you never said any of this. And they would have had a whole bunch of people sign affidavits and said, Joseph, this is a lie. And the church wouldn't have worked. But as they moved away from where he was, he had a revelation, get out of here. His old reputation stayed there, and he was able to concoct an entirely new history. Joseph did what any person would do who does not fear the true and living God in the least. He had that true and living God drop down and make an appearance to him and him alone. This event, once embraced and recited, would sear into the minds of the people past and present that Joseph Smith's mission was divinely driven. And the genius of it, the diabolical genius of it, is there is nobody who can say it didn't happen based on a witness. The only way we can say it didn't happen is by those tests that we gave it. Secondly, it had almost been two decades since Joseph Smith claimed the Book of Mormon uh, angel appeared to him. And since that time, it's been almost two decades, Joseph had totally changed in his ideas about the ontology or makeup of God. 
Early, Joseph Smith taught about, hey, look it, God is a spirit. God the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, a Trinitarian doctrine. And it was, it was there in his writings. He then morphed to it only being two, just Father and Son. And then he morphed again, he morphed again. And in time, you can see it in his writings, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Pretty soon, God became a, a, man, a person who was once a man and who is now in a body of flesh and bone. So in concocting a new history and myth, he could set in place his newest ideas on the makeup of God, that he was once a man, resides in a physical body, and he could go backward in time and say, look, at when I was 14, I had a vision, and that God appeared to me. But we don't see any of that for the first 20 years. Now, I've been thinking about this, and I just want you to consider it before we open up the phones. When it comes to praising God, worshiping God, giving him all honor, thanking him. When something goes right, you're just, God, thank you so much. I, you're so awesome. Thank you for creating the, all the stuff that we attribute to God as Christians. In reality, in Mormon doctrine, you are worshiping a man. You're just, you are giving a man thanks. A man who used to sit on a toilet. A man who used to be tempted by smoking a cigar and, and chicks down at the beach. You are worshiping a guy who happened to proceed through all the trials of mortal probation and now he is who the Mormons are praising and thanking and giving honor to, a man. There is nothing more diabolical than that. Nothing. God is not man. Scripture is replete with examples from that. So once Joseph got his first vision in place and a priesthood authority in place, which is such a load of junk. Just read Grant Palmer's Insider View of Mormon Origin uh, on that, a priesthood. You'll see what a joke that thing is. And even newer scripture began pouring out from him in the Doctrine and Covenants, in his revelations, in his translation of this Pearl of Great Price, which is another joke. Uh, the Mormon train kept a rolling all night long, baby. And it rolled forward and it left the facts and real history in the dust of indifference of deception and, and in the hands of conspiring men who, loving a lie more than a truth, loving a power more than a truth, loving to hear their names called, loving people to stand when they walk in a room, loving the chief seats there in the conference center, loving to have this power and mantle of authority, compare them to Peter and Paul and John and Andrew and all the early apostles. These guys have said we have to hide the facts from the masses and we have to give them a version that is one wholesale lie. Even this day, a lie. Let's open up the phones, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. We have um, Mark and Sugarhouse, we'll take that first and we'll come back to a partner's spot. Mark and Sugarhouse, first time caller. My phones are not lit up at all. Mark? Yes. Hey, you're on the air. What's up, man? Hey, uh, when you start your church, are you going to be called pastor? I want to be called Sean. However, uh, well, let me explain my question just a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, all the uh, stuff that Jesus said against the Pharisees and that, um, you showed two videos at the beginning of the show criticizing the Christian, crazy Christianness, and you said you wanted to start a lean church. Yeah. And I share that vision. I think a lot of us that have come to Christ really want a purified, you know, a stripped-down version. Okay. And uh, in that sense, I'm like, wow, this sounds great. But also, I know that you, the human nature, it's hard for me to criticize LDS 
uh, practice when I see so much of it in Christianity. Well, I agree with you. I mean, yeah, just be, but just because uh, Christianity fails in areas doesn't make Mormonism right, you know? Uh, Mark, it, it, that's the thing. We have to fight for biblical truth, and we have to earnestly strive to get down to what's basic. You asked if I'm going to be called pastor. Pastor is an Old Testament title. New, uh, New Testament, all we have is elder and deacon, really. So, and we have teachers, and we have, I'm really more of a teacher than anything else. And, and, and I do pastor people in the sense of giving advice and praying with them and things. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I don't care what people call me. People can come to the church and call me jackass for all I care about, because I am sometimes. Uh, I, I, I care that we teach the Bible, we pray together, and we have koinonia fellowship for people then to go out into the community and be Christians to their neighbors. That's, that's, that's the vision I have. I'm going to fail. I'm going to mess up, and it, like everybody does. But as long as we can avoid some of the trappings that the LDS and other Christian churches have embraced, I think we'll be successful. Does that help? I agree that it's not that easy, that uh, it's a high ideal, that, but most of us Christians fall short of it. So what are you, what's your point? My point is I share the vision. I just don't think it's that easy for Christians or anybody. Oh, I don't think anything's easy that's worth it. Nothing's easy. But we're going to fight for it, and hopefully we'll have people around. Maybe you, uh, Mark, you can come and say, hey, you're getting off course there, Sean. We don't, you know, and that's fine with me. Uh, but let's try at least. Let's try to strip down the body back to the basics of Acts 2. Let's try to love each other. Let's try to be people of faith. And, you know, not make the church this monolithic thing, but make our Christian life devoted to serving and loving our neighbor and God. Okay? Okay. Oh. I tried to send you an email this week called Dream Church, or something that I've dreamt about for a long time. Why green? The people that are with you on that. Why green, Mark? Hey, hey thanks for taking it. Ma but Mark, why green? Hey, thank you. Bye. Okay. Oh, Dream. Dream Church. Yeah, well, good luck with the Dream Church. Uh, yeah, you get two people together in a room, the dream ends. <laughs> so... And I get that about it. And, you know, I really do see the need for this hierarchy and structure when you get with people because, you, you know, people want to be corralled. They want to be controlled. It just reduces their responsibility, and they can lay it all on the church. They take their children, throw them in there. They take themselves, throw them there in the pew. They pay enough. They do enough, and then they feel good. But, but you know, it, it's a battle. It's a tension. There's a struggle, but it's good, and I think that's what we're going to try to pursue. Okay, listen. Let's go to a partner spot, come back. We've got some really, really good emails uh, for you to consider. And we're taking calls, 801-973-TV20, uh, 801-973-8820. We'll see you in a second.
Oh, we have a message on the screen that says, Caller wants me to read Galatians 8. I would, but there's no Galatians 8. There's only Galatians up through 6. And if they've met Ephesians, there's no Ephesians 8 either. So, caller, call back and give us the right reference. Listen, about a month ago, I read an email on the show. It said, Sean, I'm 21 years old, and I've been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints my entire life. Your efforts to tell on the church are not only inappropriate, they're also vulgar and tasteless. Sean, you remind me of dog blank on the sidewalk, waiting to get the shoe of innocent Christians. Sean, you are a false prophet and are leading people astray to Jesus Christ and the only true church. Church continues to grow and your ministry can't do anything about it. That proves me right, Sean. I want you to know something. I want you to know that I know the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. I know Joseph Smith is a prophet of the Lord, and I know Thomas... Spencer Monson is the living prophet. I know the Book of Mormon is true and another testament of Jesus Christ. Sean, I think you would take a deep breath and sincerely pray. Study our prophet. And then he goes on and on and on. Uh, we got this email about four days ago. Sean, Dylan here. Last month I wrote you and read an email uh, and you read on Heart of the Matter. First off, as hard as it is for me to admit, I was wrong. I did heavy research about the church, mostly on the topic of prophets and the first vision. This past episode of the show was a clincher for me as far as the first vision goes. You helped me realize it was all a big lie. As far as modern prophets go, men like Thomas S. Monson and Gordon B. Hinckley have been leading me away from God the Creator and leading me to a false created God. It's hard for me to accept this. There are still days when I try to convince myself otherwise, but at the end of the day, facts are facts. For the first time in my life, I can say that I met God. All these years, I wasn't praying to God. I was praying to a created God that didn't exist. That may sound generic, but that's the scary truth. It makes me sick to see Thomas Monson pose as a prophet. Whether he believes in his heart he's a prophet, I don't know. But either way, LDS members hang on to his every word and follow him more than Jesus. I was the same way. Follow the prophet I was always taught. I looked up to Monson and his example he set. Now I know his example is deceiving. If one follows Monson, they're following a false Christ. It's absolute blasphemy that they call themselves apostles and prophets. I choose to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, I have a journal where I write down quotes that inspire me. All of my quotes are from the LDS presidents. Today I crossed them all out, all out and wrote it, how much I need Christ. He goes on and on and on and on telling about how he was deceived, how the light has come in. This is why we do the show. We don't expect there to be a mass exodus. We don't expect there to be thousands uh, a year, even hundreds a year probably, but we do expect for those who the Lord is calling and those who want truth to hear and respond. And we have the emails to show they do. I was having a discussion earlier with Cassidy and she said, and she goes, she helps greatly with all the emails, so does Mary. And she said in reviewing all the hundreds and thousands of emails uh, that we get, we have yet to see somebody write who says, I have been watching your show, I am LDS, I'm leaving the church, I hate God. They have all, and I praise God for this, because of how he set this up, they have all said, I am, was LDS, I am LDS, I've come to know the truth, and I am in a full living relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that is a blessing, and I just want to let you know it's happening out there, Thanks to uh, people watching the show for the station letting us be on here for being able to reach out like that. Okay. <clears throat> uh, we have uh, Jeremy in something, Utah. He is a first-time caller, and he's LDS. Jeremy, you're on Heart of the Matter. How's it going, Sean, my brother? Good. How are you doing? Oh, I've actually been having quite the struggle the last eight or, eight, eight or nine months or so. Yeah? Show. 
doing some research and reading lots and, uh, you know, even been reading, like, discourses from Brigham Young and Joseph Smith and trying to get my hands on some church history books and stuff like that. And, you know, me having five kids, um, it, it's kind of scary to, uh, you know, leave the church because if I'm not right, you know, I'm responsible for my children. Right. You know, as well. And so, sorry, I'm a little emotional. It's okay, man. <laughs> right. Um, I, I just have some basic questions. Yeah. I want to know if um, if there are any stories of the Bible or any parts of the Bible that um, that you question yourself as far as, you know, like uh, Noah's Ark or, I mean, just, just any part of the Bible that uh, you think might might have been kind of compromising. Yeah. One or another. I, I, do, I do question. I, I, I've always questioned. I'm a questioner. So I've wondered about the ark, and I've wondered about how that actually worked. I've wondered about a worldwide flood. I've wondered about the creative process. I've wondered about how that meshes with what we see in terms of uh, science. Uh, I'm just laying it out on the line here. I've wondered about all those things. Uh, but the difference between my wondering about those things and wondering about things of Mormonism is uh, we have a narrative that is substantiated by fact and, and so when the, narr when the narrative or the story says, hey, uh, there, the animals of the earth got on this ark and were called by Noah and God, and they got on there and they survived the flood, I can buy that because uh, they're, they're, um, we have a narrative that is consistent in all other parts. When you have a story or narrative that comes out from the Book of Mormon and it talks about a civilization and a people and the whole book is based on nothing that's substantiated, I have a great problem with that. So where 99% probably of the Bible I can, I can buy completely and I have questions about other areas, the 99% is, is verifiable or 95% verifiable. But where Mormonism, it's like 1% is verifiable, and that's one of the subject. And 99% is not. That's the difference between the two. Do you, do you think, um, you know how uh, the Mormons uh, teach that Joseph Smith will be there in, in, the, in the last days next to Christ judging yeah. people? Well, do you think that, um, like, say, Moses will be judging the people from his generations next to Christ? I don't know about Moses because I don't know the, that, the passage well enough to say that whether it's in there or not, but I do know that the 12 apostles will, and I know that the Christians, those who have been saved by Christ's blood, will help judge. So uh, that idea of Joseph judging this dispensation isn't too far removed from what the Bible says that Christians and the apostles will do too. The difference is this, though. What, what, what is your take or your belief on, as a Christian on any modern-day prophet? Oh, uh, listen, I believe in modern-day prophecy. That's biblical. But I don't believe there are, there are prophets like unto Moses providing new scripture, receiving revelation for the whole church. That's the difference between the two. Okay? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Sean. I, uh, I, I've been doing a lot of my own research, and, and uh, when I first started watching your show, I was pissed. I mean, good. you tell me as, as an LDS person that I wasn't a Christian, and I always thought that, you know, if you accepted Christ and, and Him as your Savior, that you're a Christian. And, and you know, watching your show and doing my, my own reading and whatnot, um, I, I've really been talking to my wife and my children, and, and uh, I'm pretty much going to be um, getting my records removed from the church. It is a, it's, a pretty hard, it's a pretty hard step, and my family pretty much, they won't even talk to me about it. They just get so pissed. Um, but I, I, I really do want to thank you. I, I think you're, 
you're a good man. I, I'm not, Jeremy. I'm, I'm really quite a bad man, but thank God. Thank God. <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate yeah. your show, and uh, I watch it every week, and, and you're, doing, you're doing a good thing. I, I'm, I'm really starting to, to, uh, to get it. Thanks, Jeremy. Can I, can I tell you one more thing? Sure. Jeremy, and you probably heard me say this before, you will not go wrong with those beautiful children and your wife. You stay by their side. If your wife says, I'm staying LDS, Jeremy, you love her like Christ loved the church. You stay married, you devote your life to those kids, and you pursue Christ, and you will not go wrong. Your family will be blessed in ways you can't believe. Now, it gets tough, but I promise you, my brother, I promise you, the Lord will bless you more abundantly than the, the state of Utah, the church of Utah, the people in your community, or the religion. Trust in him, Jeremy, okay? I, I do, I do. I, re, I really, again, thank you, and I love you, brother. Keep, love you too, my friend. Thanks. I'll see you at the show soon. We'll be coming down one of these weeks. Good. Look forward to it. Bye-bye. Hey, have a good one. We're going to a first-time caller who's LDS. I don't know the name. LDS first-time caller. You're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, uh, Mr. Sean, how you doing? How you doing? It's, it, it, praise the Lord that I'm finally getting to talk to you. Way cool, way cool. Pra praise the Lord, way cool, way cool. LDS, even. And you're praising the Lord. That's awesome. Is that true? Oh, well, you know, uh, technically I'm, I'm LDS, but I just had to send in a, you know, a letter of, resigna uh, of resignation or whatever it is that you send in. I see. But, but you've, you've, you've really prod prodded me toward that direction, and ultimately I'm going to do it, but I just got to... The time's just got to be right for it. Sure. So what's going on, man? Well, uh, got a question for you. Did you know that the Mormon Church defines the word familiar spirit for 11 times in the, in the King James Version of the Bible as evil, sorcery, witchcraft, superstitious, but then the 12th time when it refers to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, all of a sudden it's a good thing. Oh, Wow, that's really important. You mean in Isaiah when it talks about, uh, speaks as a familiar spirit from the dust? Yes, yes, sir. If you look in their topical guide, uh, they provide 12 references outside of uh, the Book of Mormon references where you can find the word familiar spirit in the Old Testament. And for the first 11 times, they define the word familiar spirit as evil, sorcery, witchcraft, etc., etc., but then for the twelfth time, when they when speaks forth the come forth of the Book of Mormon, all of a sudden it's a good thing. And the all every time I confront them about it, they have no no answer for it. And uh, ultimately, one of them told me that Bruce R. McConkie said uh, usually it does mean an evil thing, but in this case, <laughs> it's a good thing. That is that's very self-serving, isn't it? Yeah, that is amazing. You know, that is a tremendous fact, LaVon. I really appreciate you bringing that to the table because it's important. Never in the Bible is a familiar spirit a good thing. It's a devil, baby. And uh, that is really good how they will justify their use of that Isaiah passage, which the missionaries used to support the Book of Mormon, and say, in this case, a familiar spirit is not evil. Really good uh, stuff, LaVon. Yeah. Good talking to you, bro. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye-bye. Anonymous caller says, you're lying. The angel was called Moroni many years before Nephi. It was mistaken in the newspaper. He is LDS. Well, I'm not lying because I gave you the quote as to where it's found. I mean, you now you say it was a mistake in the newspaper. I don't know why the typesetter was typing away at Joseph's, Joseph's account, and he gets to the name Moroni, which Joseph would have written there, 
and he decides to type in Nephi in a paper that was owned and distributed by the Mormon church. So, you know, but let's say it's a typo. How do you account for the fact that there is so much discrepancy about whether it was Moroni or Nephi or a spirit or an angel or God or just the Lord or a bunch of angels? I mean, how do you account for all that? We're going to talk more about that as we get more into uh, uh, what Joseph did with uh, Moroni's visitation. So, yes, there were accounts that Moroni visited. I realize that. But there's also accounts that says Nephi did, just like there are accounts that say angels visited him in the first vision, and there are accounts that say God the Father and the body of flesh and bone did. So look, I'm not talking about I'm dead right on every single uh, interpretation of the facts, but I am saying that these are the facts, buddy, and you explain to me why they are so convoluted. However, I know you can explain them, just like LeVon pointed out. You'll come up with something to explain it but it doesn't make it true. All right, we're going to Jeff in Salt Lake City. He's a first-time caller, and he's on line two. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jeff, you were? Okay, listen. Um, a few years ago, a, a girl here, um, she came to me with an English paper. She was asked to write on a specific topic. She wrote on the topic. Her name is Kelsey. And the topic, uh, I can't even remember it, but I read the whole thing. She gave it to her LDS teacher, and her LDS teacher gave her like a C or C minus because, and the LDS teacher was arguing about the, the uh, stance that Kelsey had taken in the paper about religion in Utah and not about how it was written or the prose or the grammar or the punctuation, et cetera, that an English teacher would in high school. And we started talking about how difficult it is to live in Utah and not be uh, LDS. And so you guys really have it difficult here. Well... I, I learned firsthand how difficult it can be. Um, I sent in an uh, online application, all kinds of applications, to have a bunch of DVD of Earl, Bishop Earl's thing done professionally. And uh, one company, the, the sales girl, got on the phone and she was so happy to help me. And we said we wanted a thousand of those. And what would the price be? And how much to put a picture on it? And all the stuff you do to try to get DVDs duplicated here in the state. And so everything was going good. I mean, she called me with the happiest, cheerfulest voice on one night about, we're going to have them ready for you by the time you have your park event. Well, the next day, I try to call her, and she won't call me back. And I call and call and call, and she won't call me back. And I've got to get a piece of information to her to meet a deadline in order to get the job done, but she won't call me back. Finally, I get an email, and it says, I was in the process of getting the paperwork set up for your order and went to your website to get a physical address for your company. I read your bio and quickly realized that the DVDs we've been discussing in being is being produced in an effort to attack my religion. As an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I don't feel like I can ethically profit from this order and would prefer not to run it. However, since I've given you an estimate, I will honor it for this order only and just donate my sales commission to charity. If you'd rather find an alternative duplication option for this order, I completely understand. She gives me a reference for another company here to go to. I'm really sorry to put you in this position because time was of the essence, but the content of your DVDs isn't something I really personally feel comfortable contributing to. So I wrote her back and I said, you know, the content of this DVD is not attacking your religion. The content, actually, you should watch it, is just one of your former bishops telling the story of what your religion's about. 
You say it's attacking, it's just someone who says, look at, here are the facts about that religion. But you have just tacitly decided, no, you don't get to, we're not gonna do your business. Well, I guess she's not the owner of the company, she's a sales girl, but she got to make that decision based on the fact that she was LDS in and of itself. I also said, is this what happens when students in classrooms here in Utah who are not LDS write, us, write something that isn't in line with Mormon thinking? Do they get a lesser grade? Is this what happens when you're on a sports team and you're not LDS in this state? And do other kids get the, 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 the key positions? Is this what happens in a play when, when casting's being done? Are, do the other kids get those positions who are LDS ahead of the, the non-LDS? In fact, is this what will happen when a Mormon president comes into office and certain uh, contractors are trying to get jobs. Are the Mormons going to get the jobs first and those who aren't going to be left out of the sideline? I think so. I've seen it firsthand. Later I had a conversation with the owner of this company and it was wholly uh, obscene in his not wanting to take any type of stance on this, but he supports the error his salesperson made. I assume you're LDS. Well, yes, but that has nothing to do with it. Oh, okay. So I realized firsthand what it's like to live in this state when you're under a theocracy that controls much. Now, I, re I realize that it's not always the case, but it's enough of the case to make you mad, and I thought we'd share that with you. Let's try Jeff again in Salt Lake City on line three. Jeff, you're on Heart of the Matter. I'm sorry? You're on the air. You're on the air, Jeff. Hello? You're on the air. Hi, is this Sean? Yeah, you need to turn your TV down if it's on. Okay. Hi, Sean. Hi. Um, my question is, well, first of all, I appreciate everything you're doing, and I think it's great, and I think the message you're sending is good. Um, you're obviously a raised LDS person, correct? Yes. Farm raised. I, um, I'm not from Salt Lake City. I moved here from out of state, and... A couple things, and moving from another state to here, it's very unusual, very bizarre. Um, it's a true culture shock, if that's the right word. My question to you is, um, being a, a raised LDS, and, um, oh, I don't know how to word it, but how do educated people that are adults and raised in colleges and schools and clear-thinking people can truly believe this uh, LDS message that has been around for 150 years. I really, truly don't understand when I meet people here in Salt Lake City how they can buy into this when they know that what you say has truths. Well, let me give you a couple insights which might help, might not. First of all, uh, if they're not converts, they have been raised from a very young age uh, having their mind inculcated with this is the true church from a very young age they get up and say I know the church is true before they even know what the alphabet is I mean they are saying they know the church is true so it is truly driven in their heads from a very young age and it continues to go on all the way up through their teen uh, adolescent uh, young adult years and even as adults that's the first thing the second thing is is belief is far stronger than facts uh, so somebody is always going to adhere to belief in something. Hence, look at uh, Jonestown, look at uh, Waco. They will believe in something far more than what the facts are saying. The Om Karen, a cult in, in Japan, it was 95% PhDs. And those guys were blowing up uh, subways with uh, sarin uh, poisoning. 
So belief is not necessarily um, tied to uh, intellect. Some of the very smartest people can do very diabolical. Look at Nazi Germany. I mean, they followed along hook, line, and sinker with a, with a maniac, uh, and they were smart people too. The, 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 the third thing is, is there are economic benefits, but bottom line, when you become an adult, um, Jeff, it plays to your pride. When you are knowing that you're working toward becoming a god, when you realize that you are being called bishop, stake president, you have the honors of men, and, and it works for you financially, and it, all of that stuff ultimately undergirds uh, these people's reasons for staying in there. And bottom line, it's like Jesus said, they love the darkness more than the light. And Sean, I, I see all this in only less than three years coming from Wisconsin to Florida to North Carolina to here and being around the country. I can see all this from an outsider coming in. Um, it, it's, it's somewhat comical to me. It's almost like animation. Yeah. But when I watch what goes on here on Sundays and so on, it just is somewhat comical. But what really truly bothers me, I guess, is from a guy that grew up in the Midwest and I was raised Lutheran, and I don't really label myself anything except um, a Ten Commandments believer, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I feel sorry more for anything than the children that are raised Mormon because I feel they'll never have a normal, proper upbringing because, and I hope they hear this, if they can get the message, because it's the children that suffer. Yeah. If they become a Mormon as an adult, well, then that's up to them after they're an adult. Right. But as a child becoming or being raised a, a Mormon, they don't get a choice in the lie. That's a, the way I see it. It's a really good point, Jeff. We're out of time. God bless you, my friend. All right. Thanks brother. so much. Bye-bye. Listen, just a thought. What is a stronger element characteristic in a man or a woman? Someone who lives totally by faith or somebody who is cowering, trying to do works in order to appease a God and trying to make sure that they hope they have salvation or someone who knows through the faith and blood of Jesus Christ. Take that thought. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Mm -hmm.